This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, amid much pomp and pageantry and a four-day weekend, the United Kingdom will mark a moment of history. The Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Beacons will be lit across the country and Commonwealth. Thousands of street parties will be held and stars and celebrities will take part in a glittering concert at Buckingham Palace as we mark the Queen's 70 years on the throne. The longest reign of any British monarch and one of the longest in the history of the world. But how much do we really know about the Queen? We ask the people who report on her day in, day out. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee from our royal correspondents. In the run-up to the Jubilee, I sat down to record a special Times Plus event with the authorities on all things royal from the Times and the Sunday Times, Valentine Lowe and Roya Nikar. Today, we're bringing you the highlights of our conversation. And if you're a Times subscriber, you can still access the whole event online. I began by asking them what drew them to the role of royal correspondent. I had to really be persuaded when I was on another publication. I was an arts correspondent and my predecessor who covered the Royal Brief was about to leave and go in, into a different um, field entirely. And he said, you know, I think you should throw your hat into the ring for the job. It's quite a nice brief. This is 2010. It's quite a gentle brief. I think really much has happened for a while. You get to go on some nice overseas tours. And I really have to say I was very sceptical and said I don't really have any interest in the roles at all. I don't really think so. And I think my editor at the time thought I was of a similar age to the younger royals and might it be good to have me sort of covering it. And so I threw my hat into the ring and I got the job. And I thought I would have a very long run in to sort of learn how it all worked. And two weeks later, William and Kate got engaged. (laughs) And a sort of huge story came flying at me and I knew nothing. So it was a baptism of fire. So I can't say I was drawn to covering them. But now that I do... um, It's never boring. It hasn't been boring in the 12 years I've been doing it. 
you get into everything from weddings, funerals, the really interesting constitutional stuff sometimes, which is fascinating. You touch on the world of politics too. The overseas tours tend to be fascinating. It's a very niche brief, but it feels quite broad. Valentine, is it the same for you? Very similar in many ways. I resisted a lot. I was asked if I'd do the job a long time ago and said no, and then circumstances changed. It's a funny uh, journalistic specialisation because no one really seeks out to do it. Mm. And if they do, they should be stopped immediately because uh, <laughs> they're quite clearly inappropriate. Uh, they're far too sycophantic and royalist because it does require a certain distance and objectivity and be able to look at the whole institution, you know, with an outside uh, eye. But it is fascinating because you are looking at the broad sweep of history. You have to look at the minutiae of what's going on now and also in the greater context, and that's what makes it interesting. And it is such a huge slice of British public life. When you are sort of on, say, a royal visit or, or a, a, an overseas trip, and you're sort of seeing the, the royal family up close and you're seeing them day after day, do you get to see a different side to them, it's particularly the Queen, because I think for a lot of people who've followed her over the years, it's very hard to know her as a character. Do you get glimpses of what she's like behind the scenes? When you do engagements, when you see her interactions and you hear the jokes that she cracks or you see her smile or she's observed something, of course you see that in, in much more close quarters than the public. And I think with the Queen, everyone has such a sort of set image in their mind of who she is, what she represents, what she's really like kind of in public. But when you're covering engagements, you are obviously much closer. I wouldn't claim I know her. I don't think Val would either. But we certainly see members of the royal family <laughs> up much closer quarters than anyone else does. We do see them off duty, which we don't report on. So I, th I think we probably have a closer understanding than a lot of people. But there is also, you know, there is a fence between them and us too. I would say that the Queen is different to all other members of the royal family in that she retains her enigma to an extent, even if when you see her up close. But if you see her up close repeatedly, particularly over a number of years, you do learn to read the Queen. So it's very easy to know whether she's having a good time or not. <laughs> I love this. What are the signs? This is like Kremlinology. Well, well, you know, has she got her Miss Piggy face on? Um, <laughs> recently, I saw her up close when she opened the Queen Elizabeth line at Paddington Station. And she was quite clearly animated. It was a couple of days after she'd seen that great horse extravaganza at Windsor Castle. And she was on top form. She was chatting away and beaming. And you could tell that she is doing fantastically well at 96 uh, and was quite interested and was enjoying herself. And when this young chap, the customer experience assistant at Paddington <laughs> Station, 24-year-old Kofi, showed her how to top up her oyster card. Just put it in she was she was paying attention. She asked him what it did and where it take her. And he said everywhere, basically. Uh, <laughs> she was engaged, and that was interesting to watch. I can, sure, I can tell you. Surely she qualifies for a freedom pass. <laughs> I suspect <laughs> she has been given a freedom pass somewhere at some point in, in the past. I tried checking lost. the Buckingham Palace yesterday. No one there knew. <laughs> I think it's at the back of a drawer somewhere. I can tell you the happiest I've seen her in the 12 years I've been doing this job, and it was a few years ago. She came to the Household Cavalry's Knightsbridge Barracks to rename one of their drum horses. <laughs> and she spent an hour inspecting the lines, inspecting the horses, looking at a horse that had actually she'd given to the Household Cavalry, down in the forge with the farriers, talking to the forage master about the horse's feeds. I 
have never seen her more engaged and alive and smiley for a solid hour. And the queen and horses, everyone knows that. But that was a different engagement as she was sort of fizzing. Is that the life you think she probably would be like, like to have spent more time doing? Unquestionably. Yeah. <laughs> we have the Platinum Jubilee. It's a big moment in our national history. We've never seen one of these before. It's record breaking. This is a big, a big moment for, for the country. How much do you think it means to her? Is she very aware of her place in history and being the longest serving monarch and, and the idea of bringing the nation together for a platinum jubilee? I think she's very aware of her place in history, but she's got an immense modesty. So when she passed Queen Victoria's record as the country's longest serving sovereign, she really had to be persuaded to acknowledge it in any way whatsoever, because I think her view was, this is not about me. Many, including you, First Minister, have also kindly noted another significance attaching to today. Although it is not one to which I have ever aspired, inevitably, a long life can pass by many milestones. My own is no exception. I mean, eventually, her private secretary persuaded her to do an event that day. So now, to the business in hand, it is my very happy duty to declare the Borders Railway open. She opened a railway line in mm. Scotland, and we all trooped up to go and watch her. But that's not her style. It's not about her, in her view. But she is also aware of the Jubilee and its importance. Someone once talked about the, the Golden Jubilee or the Diamond Jubilee, and she corrected them and said, it was her Diamond Jubilee or her Golden Jubilee. <laughs> <laughs> Very aware of her place in, in the nation. Yeah. Before we go on to the Platinum Jubilee, I really wanted to go back to where it all started. Take us back to the 2nd of June, 1953. She's being crowned in Westminster Abbey. And it's the first time we've got a, a coronation that's televised. You've got people all over the world stopping to watch it. Madam, is your majesty willing to take the oath? Willing. Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Union of South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon, and of your possession and the other territories to any of them belonging or pertaining? according to their respective laws and customs. I solemnly promise so to do. I mean, it was a, it was a huge moment. She had initially been very reluctant to have the thing televised. Television was the coming thing. Not many households had them, but it was expanding. People were renting them. People used to rent tellies in those days. And the BBC was extremely keen that it should be televised. And the people, they wanted to see their queen. They wanted to see their queen being crowned. O oh God, the crown of the faithful, bless we beseech thee this crown, and so sanctify thy servant Elizabeth, upon whose head this day thou dost place it for a sign of royal majesty, that she may be filled by thine abundant grace with all princely virtues through the King eternal, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
the moment of the Queen's crowning is come. She initially thought it would be intrusive. I think she was worried about the lights. She was worried about the indignity of it all, I think. But having initially said no, uh, when it became apparent that actually this was the will of the people, she said, OK, I think we have to go with this. And she sent her private secretary, Alan Nassels, a great stuffed shirt figure who <laughs> viewers may remember from The Crown. She sent him off to go and negotiate uh, a compromise. And they found a compromise which basically meant that the most intimate and significant parts of the coronation, the not the communion, were not televised. And that, that was the beginning of the rot, wasn't it? That was when they let the media in, and we've never looked back. <laughs> Nothing has been the same since. I mean, it does feel like ever since then, every big moment for her family, in a very private way, but also as a result for the nation, has been followed by the press. And, you know, the media is a constant companion in many ways. For you, covering those events, whether they're weddings or funerals or, or jubilees, I mean, what is that like? Is that quite a fun gig when you know that the whole nation is watching? And in fact, particularly, actually, the rest of the world. It can be a bit <laughs> terrifying, actually, when you're doing those big events for a big broadcaster like the BBC or something. But you're also, as Val said earlier, you're aware that you are witnessing, in a, quite an interesting, different way, a moment in history. I think people make the assumption about me, and I don't know about Val, but they assume that if you're a royal editor or correspondent, you must be a monarchist, you must love the royal family. And I think you, to do this job well, you can neither be monarchist nor Republican. You need to somehow sort of <laughs> float somewhere in between. And when you're covering those big events, jubilees, weddings, funerals, Obviously, you can sometimes, you know, you feel that the emotion of the events, of course you do, but you somehow sort of have to celebrate them in a different way because you're conscious that you're, you know, trying to give your reader or your viewer the full picture in a sort of more rounded way than perhaps being immersed in celebrating it. So it's a very different kind of experience, I think. Yeah, what's always fascinating, particularly at this sort of time when a jubilee is uh, about to happen, you get all these requests from foreign television stations to come and interview you. I mean, I'm trying to deal with one at the moment from Polish television. And you think, it's kind of fascinating the idea that Polish TV is very keen on reporting the Jubilee. But the, and it's the same all around the world. The Germans and the French absolutely fascinated by it. And of course, the Americans. I mean, they got rid of us a long time ago, but they, <laughs> they like to kind of hang on to this. It's an extraordinary feeling. There is a sense that those occasions, whether they're the big weddings or, or the Jubilees, they are sort of a moment that seem to stop the nation and bring, you know, unite people in a way that we don't often get in just normal life. I mean, just thinking back to 1977, for example, you know, the backdrop was, you know, we, the country was having serious economic troubles. We'd just had to go to the IMF for a loan, which who would have thought Britain would have to do that. And yet when the Silver Jubilee comes along, the whole country seems to come out and celebrate. Tell us a bit about that Jubilee. Well, what was interesting about that was that the Queen had to be persuaded to celebrate it. She was a bit reluctant and they didn't really know what the reception would be like. But in the months, in the three months or so preceding the Jubilee, the Queen and Prince Philip toured the country and they went to every single corner of Britain. About 32 counties they visited, something like that. And it was really an attempt to reach out and connect with the people. And the people responded, I think. 
I think that they showed their appreciation of the Queen in a way that they don't normally do so. The Queen is in the background a lot of the time for people, but when they have to think about her, they appreciate her. I think we'll see this this Jubilee. I think at the moment, in the days and weeks before it, it feels a bit sotto, but I think when it actually comes to it, people will sort of respond. And it must have been an interesting moment because, you know, by the 70s, she'd been on the throne for 25 years, but the, the, the country, society had changed quite a lot around her. You know, you'd had the swinging 60s, the beginning of the death of deference, I suppose. Was there a fear back then? I mean, you said she was reluctant to do it. Was there a fear that people wouldn't turn up or people wouldn't be as enthusiastic as they were? Yes, very much so. And actually, you got that echoed to an even greater extent in 2002 with the Golden Jubilee, because the royal family had been through a terrible feeling of unpopularity before that. You'd, you'd had 1992, her Annus Horribilis. 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. <clears throat> In the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be an Annus Horribilis. You'd had 1997 and the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. The royal family had been going through a process of trying very hard to kind of rebuild their brand, their image, after the, this, these terrible years. And they were not quite sure how it was going to go down. But again, like in 1977, the palace and, and, and the Queen were quite surprised by the positive response from the public. And I suppose it must be odd because the Queen in many ways for you know the, the country really has sort of been a, a constant she's the steady point but so much has changed around her that uh, you suspect you know in the way that the whole country doesn't sit down and watch the same thing on tv anymore that perhaps there won't be that moment of unity the queen has played it very very cleverly over the course of her reign because she came from an age where it was quite possible to get away with not ever giving an interview mm. which she's done which you couldn't do nowadays, I don't think. So she, as I said before, she remains somewhat enigmatic. We don't really know what she thinks about most issues. And what that means, it means that people are able to project onto her what they like. So she, she becomes the queen you want her to be. And I think that's a very, as part of the secret for how she's able to be this unifying force, that she is the queen you want her to be. When Prince Charles becomes king, we know an awful lot about what he thinks about an awful lot of issues, and it will be different. Whether you manage to pull off the same trick, I don't know, but I think, I think in a way that's the secret of the Queen's success, her enigma. Is it a mistake for younger royals to be doing interviews as much or sort of making their views known as much if they want to sort of try to have the same sense of being able to unify people, be the person they look to without really ever knowing what they think? Well, I don't think it's a mistake, because I think it's inevitable, but I just think it, it, it makes it more challenging, makes it more difficult. You have to tread a very narrow path. Coming up, we'll have more from our royal correspondents, but that's after a quick word from the boss. Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You both covered the Diamond Jubilee. Talk us through your memories of that. How was that as an event? (laughs) The event that most stands out in my mind, actually, was the big concert in front of the palace. This amazing musical concert with all the stars. And the Prince of Wales gave this incredibly touching, fond tribute to his mother in front of these huge crowds. As a nation, this is our opportunity to thank you and my father for always being there for us for inspiring us with your selfless duty and service and for making us proud to be British. And I remember that night, that's when I got a sense, that's the first Jubilee I'd covered, of, I felt very strongly, it was an outpouring of affection over that whole weekend. Not so much for the institution of monarchy, but more for her, actually. Her as a person. Yeah, her as a person, her as, you know, the head of nation. And I think we'll feel that again, actually. But it was a, it was a real insight for me because it, it started making me think you know, about British and, and, you know, people around the world, their opinion of the institution, the monarchy and the queen separately. And I got a very sort of strong sense that the celebration and thanks was really f- for her, actually. I suppose there is something about, you know, and more you talked about her as the head of nation, really, but there is something about, I think, people... Who even, even people who think they're Republicans, there is something about the Queen at times of crisis that seems to bring the nation together. And I think we all sort of saw that at the start of the pandemic mm. when there was so much uncertainty, lockdown happened, politicians and, and scientists were doing lots of press conferences, but it seemed to be the moment that the Queen addressed the nation that it made a difference. I'm speaking to you at what I know is an increasingly challenging time a time of disruption in the life of our country, a disruption that has brought grief to some, financial difficulties to many, 
and enormous changes to the daily lives of us all. Those of us in the royal pack had been clamouring to Buckingham Palace, when will we hear from the Queen? When will we hear from the Queen? And the response was very interesting, I think because the government and the Prime Minister and the palace knew that they had one shot. And the Queen, you know, th there's something about when the Queen speaks, people, people turn to her not to see sort of what she's saying, but to see what she's also doing. She's non-political, therefore, I think at a time when the government was asking us to go into I extreme measures and have our civil liberties completely removed, hearing words of encouragement from the Queen, you know, made that extraordinary special address to the nation, acknowledging how bizarre and unique and strange it was to be asked these things, to understand she was doing that too. And it was the words of encouragement, you know, there's wonderful words at the end as well. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. But for now, I send my thanks and warmest good wishes to you all. I think there's something about hearing that from the Queen in her role as head of nation that strikes a chord with people way more than any prime minister ever will. I think that address said so much about her and her role in terms of people feeling they could possibly do the impossible of what was being asked. In times of crisis, people still extraordinarily want to hear what she has to say. Just picking up something the Royal said, she talked about us, us clamouring when we can hear from the Queen. Mm. This is another thing that the Queen does very cleverly. Less is more. Mm. So we had a lot of other heads of state in, in other countries who had already spoken. And we were saying, well, when are we going to hear from the Queen? They just wanted to pick their moment and they left it much, much later than anyone else. Mm. And that was clever. So there was a much greater sense of anticipation when she did speak. Another moment that seemed to bring the country together was at Prince Philip's funeral, when again, in the middle of lockdown, there she was on her own, grieving in front of the country. What was it like to report on that? It was an extraordinary event. With grateful hearts, we remember the many ways in which his long life has been a blessing to us. We have been inspired by his unwavering loyalty. The atmosphere at Windsor was very solemn and unique because, of course, we were in a sort of COVID setting. So this grand funeral that had been planned for Philip, starting in London, moving to Windsor, never happened. Probably exactly what he would have wanted, actually, and he did plan it. <laughs> but the amazing thing about that day, not only the images of her sitting alone with no family next to her in St George's Chapel, which I think everyone agrees is seared onto the consciousness of Britain and the world, and became even more poignant when we found out what was going on in Downing Street with parties. But the story that emerged more recently, that actually the government said to the palace and to the queen, we are prepared to change legislation for a day in order to enable you, your majesty, to have the funeral that you would like to have as big as possible as many people. We will change it for the day. And the queen said, no, I will follow the rules just like everyone else has followed the rules with their family's funerals. And I thought that was, again, a big moment to find out about that later. And then of course, what we, you know, it was interesting hearing recently from Angela Kelly, who's probably the closest person to her, her personal assistant, her dresser, her gatekeeper, as she's called, who in her updated version of her book talked about the fact that after the funeral, after the service, when everyone went back 
to Windsor Castle just to stand outside following the rules and had a quick chat. The Queen went back into Windsor Castle, went into her private room, closed the doors and was on her own. There's something quite extraordinary about all those images in your mind when you think at the age of then 95 what she was dealing with and following the rules and setting an example, even whilst mourning her husband of more than 70 years. And there is incredible stoicism about the Queen. She kept the official mourning, the royal mourning, down to an absolute minimum. And she did away with a, a lot of the more formal fripperies of black lined note papers and so on, because she thought she ought to get on with life. Mm. She had a job to do and she wanted to do it. And she was, during what might have been mourning, she continued to do her work. It was quite extraordinary. She's always talked about service and it's not just saying that. She actually, she does it. She walks the walk. And Roy, you mentioned how we're, we're approaching the Jubilee now after what has been an incredibly difficult couple of years. Is there something about the weekend that's planned that you think will be a moment for national celebration, will just bring people out? And what are the events that will be taking place and, and you know, in what way do they sort of reflect her as a person? First of all, there are, you know, it's an extra bank holiday, so I think everyone's <laughs> going to be celebrating for that. Before Huge they even, relief. <laughs> even, and then get on to thinking about the Queen. I mean, the events we're going to see start on the Thursday, the 2nd of June. We've got Trooping the Colour in the morning where we hope we will see the Queen and we hope we will see the main balcony appearance on the Buckingham Palace balcony with her and, of course, just the working royals. We're probably going to see Harry and Meghan at that as well. Um, then we've got the lighting of the beacons around the country, actually, and around the Commonwealth, which I think will be quite a poignant moment. Friday, we've got the service of Thanksgiving at St Paul's, where we've been told by the palace we hope to see her there. Saturday is the Epsom Derby, and if she can make it to that, that's the one she will really want to get to. She hasn't got any runners in the Derby, but I think she does have a runner in another race that day. And then in the evening, the big party at the palace with lots of musical acts. Uh, and then on Sunday, the big pageant through the streets of London, leading up to the Man in the Palace. And I think, do any of those events reflect her? Well, they, particularly the pageant is sort of designed to reflect the 70 years of her reign in mm. terms of music and carnival and changing sort of styles and fashion. We, you know, I think people will see played out the extraordinary things that have happened through her reign and her as this constant. This Elizabethan age. This Elizabethan age. And I think things like the concert and all those events actually, which have a big sort of public presence centered either around Buckingham Palace or nearby. And members of the public are able to just sort of go in their thousands and you know, hopefully see her on the balcony. I think we will see the streets packed. I think it will be even bigger crowds than the Diamond Jubilee, that's certainly what people are anticipating. And I think it will be a moment for people to say thank you to an extraordinary monarch who has served like no other monarch. Will she enjoy it? I think she will <laughs> enjoy it. I think she will love the bits where she's sitting on the sofa at home with the remote control. But I do think it will be a moment of national unity. And I think, again, I suspect we will see that outpouring of affection for her beyond the institution. And I think it will be an interesting moment for people to think about the future too. And I hope that if she shows up for the concert, she has her earplugs like last time. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think the important thing, it's not a coincidence that Buckingham Palace has guided that, that she will make it to the National Service of Thanksgiving at St Paul's if she can, because she's a deeply religious woman. She takes that very seriously. She thinks She's you know, ordained by God to perform this role and therefore taking part in the service is for her, I think, a central part of the weekend's events.
She has missed a lot of events recently. Do, do we know how she is at the moment? The palace does like to keep their cards fairly close to their chest on this. They do say that she has mobility problems. And we do know that that, that strikes in an unpredictable way. So she can have good days and bad days. So when it came to the opening of the Elizabeth line, we didn't know until the morning of the event that she was going to appear. They suddenly said, ah, actually, the Queen's coming after all, which was a great surprise. And seeing her at that event, you did think, well, she looks OK. She seems perky. She seems engaged. She seems lively. She can walk about a bit when things are going well. What's going on behind the scenes? Hard to tell. But I don't think there's a, there's a, sort of a medical calamity that we're not being told about. And Roya, you wrote recently about how up until very recently, the, the T word, I think you called it, the idea of transition had been a taboo in the palace, but it is now being talked about much more. What is happening behind the scenes? I mean, it's been talked about for a while, but it was more taboo in terms of courtiers openly talking about it with the likes of us. I say openly, off the record. Yes. But I think what we have seen to be honest, in recent years, as I made the point in the piece, it's, you know, transition has been going on for a while, in earnest. My lords and members of the House of Commons, Her Majesty's government's priority is to grow and strengthen the economy and help ease the cost of living for families. The state opening of Parliament recently that Charles read out the Queen's speech was the most visible game changer. But actually, you know, he has been taking on big duties for her for a while, laying the wreath at the Sanitaire on Remembrance Sunday since 2017. He travels abroad now. Him and other senior royals are the face overseas of the UK and not the Queen. He doesn't do overseas travel anymore. So it has been ongoing. But I think with something like the State Opening of Parliament, what was really interesting about that was the staging of it, the crown there, but Charles reading the speech. I'm told very carefully planned by both mother and son in terms of who would read the speech? It wasn't the Lord Chancellor, it was him. And that is the Queen preparing us. She was preparing us at COP26 with her speech. We none of us will live forever, she said. We none of us will live forever. But we are doing this not for ourselves, but for our children and our children's children and those who will follow in their footsteps. We heard it in her Christmas broadcast, again, talking about how pleased and happy she is about the values and traditions that are handed down from generation to the next. It's no surprise that families so often treasure their Christmas routines. We see our own children and their families embrace the roles, traditions and values that mean so much to us, as these are passed from one generation to the next, sometimes being updated for changing times. I see it in my own family, and it is a source of great happiness. The Queen knows her age, and in clever, careful ways, with actions and words, she's preparing us for transition. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times Royal Correspondent, Valentine Lowe, and The Sunday Times Royal Editor, Roya Nikar. You can read all of their Jubilee coverage online at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. 
The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer was James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. And special thanks to the Times Plus team. You can access Times Plus events, competitions and offers by subscribing to The Times. We'll be away on Thursday and Friday, so we'll see you again on Monday. Have a lovely Jubilee weekend. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>